Hi, before we get started on the podcast today, I want to let you know that there's a virtual Listen to My Life group starting September 10th that you can join in on. It is a fantastic experience. You'll be led through by myself, Sharon Swing, along with co-author Sybil Towner and our Director of Facilitator Development, Joan Kelly. And you'll be joined by people from all over the country or all over the world, um, going through Listen to My Life together. You'll find out more information at onelifemaps.com. That's O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S.com. We're also doing another facilitator certification workshop in the Chicago area in mid-November. You'll find out more information on the website at onelifemaps.com as well. We sure hope you'll join us. It's a fantastic experience. Now, here's the podcast for today. Welcome to the One Life Maps podcast. Here's your host and co-author of Listen to My Life, Maps for Recognizing and Responding to God in My Story, Sharon Swing. Greetings, everyone. I am so excited about who we get to speak with today. Alexander Shaya is a thoughtful and poetic man living in the ancient rhythm of his Lebanese and Aramaic heritage. Alexander is a spiritual director, educator, psychologist, and passionate professional speaker traveling internationally, lecturing, and leading retreats and workshops. When not on the road, home is a fishing village in the coast of Spain and the beloved mountains above Santa Fe, New Mexico. Welcome, Alexander. Thank you, Sharon. I'm delighted. And I've just come back from Spain, and I am now at home in uh, my beloved Santa Fe. Well, I can't imagine that both places aren't wildly fond to you. I mean, they're such beautiful spaces of the world. Truly, truly. Yes. So, Alexander, what else do we need to know about how, because you work at an intersection of some various different practices and disciplines. I do, and my undergraduate was anthropology, which I sort of carried forward as a devotee advocation. Um, but then my graduate work was always back and forth between theology and psychology and spirituality. And so all of those disciplines come to bear in this fresh understanding of the Christian Gospels. Mm, so when you say fresh understanding of the Christian Gospels, um, Sometimes people might get a little nervous about that fresh understanding of the, of, the, of the Christian Gospels, but this is actually an ancient fresh understanding of the ancient Gospels, right? It, it really is um, the main view of the Christian Gospel up to about 800. So about the first six to 700 years of Christendom was rooted in this way of seeing the Gospel and then it shifted. And, and when our perspective of the gospel shifts, it, it's not to say that what was before was, was untrue. It's just we, we widen out. But uh, over the last few hundred years, we, we've um, narrowed our understanding of the gospel. And my work is trying to bring us back to sort of some root understandings that I think that will energize and renew how we see the text today. So you have coined the term quadratus. Am I pronouncing it correctly? You are. Okay. And um, I've listened to enough of your recordings, by the way, that I thought I probably had it right there. Um, the, uh, so tell us what you mean by quadratus. 
Um, for a long time in my anthropology work, and then as I studied the classics of Christian spirituality, I discovered that many, many, many um, cultures and Christian writers would talk about a fourfold journey with God. And I kept wondering if this fourfold journey that everyone was describing could be connected back to the choice and the sequencing of the four Christian Gospels. That is essentially what I have rediscovered, is that, yes, that, that when Bishop Irenaeus in the year 180 said that the choice of Gospel must be one, and yet we have to have four accounts. Why did we have to have four accounts? What was there in this fourness that is so essential to how we journey with God and how, journey, and how God journeys with us? So um, to bring us away from the idea of four different gospel texts and back to the fact that the four texts actually form a sequential journey, I wanted to coin, this, coin a name for that sequential journey, which has four parts to it. And therefore, um, what came to me was this word quadratus, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S, which interestingly, uh, when I trademarked that with the U.S. government, they came back to me and they said, well, there's a Christian author in the second century who has the name of quadratus, not T-U-S, not T-O-S at the end. And you have to claim that you knew nothing of him. Well, I went to discover who this Christian author was, who I knew nothing of, and in fact, he was another writer in the second century, also now a canonized saint, who wrote about the fourness of the gospel. So my work is actually bringing back something that most of our scholars have not known or looked at for a few hundred years. Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. So, I, just, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it when the government came back to me and gave me this link to something I didn't know. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't expect the U.S. government to to hand something. No, that <laughs> was part of the completion and, and the verification of what you're speaking of here. Right. Right. So. So yes. So yes. What I'm talking about is not is not a new AG or a new wrinkle. It's actually something that was very fundamental for the early centuries of Christianity, and it just got lost uh, in the intervening centuries. So your work in anthropology and the research that you had done in terms of rites of passage, why don't you say a few words about that? Well, again, that my... When, you're, when you study anthropology, you have to narrow yourself down to a focus. And my focus ended up being rites of initiation. And I specialized in um, rites of initiation both in the Middle East and in uh, the peoples of uh, the American Southwest. And what I discovered in both of these places, and in fact it bears out around the world, is that every great rite of initiation is conceived of as having four parts to it. And uh, the word initiation is just a, a fancy word for the process of growth and change. So in a, in a ritual is not about ceremony and performance. A ritual is about naming a life map. Uh, and I really, and I use that word with all intent here, 
because rituals are not about performa, but about teaching us how to live. And so all the great rites of initiation, which are processes of teaching us how to live, are teaching us about these four parts of life that happen over and over in us in a sequence. And a, a rite of initiation walks us through that sequence in our life one time so that we can develop skill about how to live that pattern for many years forward. Hmm. So what, in my language, what I named is the four parts, um, which is a restatement of Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell was another one of my teachers at the University of Notre Dame back in the early 70s. And he was talking about the, um, the one story that's going on across the planet. And he said the one story's got these four parts to it. And he said the first part is hearing the summons. Well, I have restated that as the first part is how we face change. And the second part, he said, was moving through great obstacles. And I've restated that as the second part is how we move through moments of great pain and suffering. And the third part, he said, is receiving the gift, which I have restated as uh, when we receive the new insight. And the fourth part, he said, is our return back to everyday life with new responsibility. And I describe this fourth part as um, our as our return uh, to be able to serve, both to serve our life and to serve the community in, in wider impact. Okay. The four questions then relate to four gospels. So walk us through that. Right. And that was that was this brilliant grace that came to me in the year 2000. I had been, for 30 years, I had been trying to put the foot in the shoe. And, and, and oftentimes, most times, I kept forcing it. And I hoped that I had enough integrity to, to say, no, if this thing doesn't, doesn't really fit, I'm not going to force it. In the late 1990s, this Anglican scholar at Oxford wrote this beautiful book in very deep theology called The Four Witnesses. And in this book, he summarizes what was going on in each one of the communities, Christian communities in the first century, when the gospel was revealed to them. And what I discovered as I read his narrative was there, that was the key. Each one of these communities had a spiritual question, and the gospel was written or revealed to them as the spiritual practice in answer of their life question. And so the first gospel placed in the gospel sequence was Matthew, and Matthew's community was wrestling with the, tr with the question of change. And the next gospel placed in the gospel sequence was Mark. And Mark's community was in a moment of extremists. They were being horribly killed by the Romans. And their question was literally uh, how they could move through a time of tremendous suffering, um, how, you, how they could walk through the valley of the shadow of death uh, by the power of the resurrection. And the third gospel in the ancient sequence was John, 
this sequence is different from the sequence that we see in the in the Bible itself, and we could talk about how that shift happened. But the third sequence, John, because John's community was a community which was the first community we have on record of being pan-tribal. This was the community that was Greek and Jewish and 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 North African and Indian and and for the very first time we had a we had a spiritual tr- tradition that was saying the door is open to anyone. It no longer matters who your mother was. It no longer matters who your bloodline is. That community had a tremendous new insight. And uh, and from that insight, they were experiencing a tremendous joy. And so the Gospel of John is written to this community to teach them how to receive that joy, how to embody it, and how to um, uh, live through the excesses of that uh, so that the joy will end up being for service. And then the fourth gospel in the ancient sequence is Luke. And the Lucan community was at a moment when the, the Roman Empire was saying to all Christians across the Mediterranean that uh, you are now illegals because of what you are seeking to do. You are seeking to live by bringing everybody together. That's not something that the Roman Emperor wanted. Um, you're raising the status of women you're treating slaves with respect. You're talking about that people who have wealth should share that with people who have less. Uh, and all of that meant that the Christians were living out of a value system which the government did not agree with. And so the government said to the Christians, you are now illegals. And the Gospel of Luke is written to all the Christian communities who are now living in this wider grace, this wider revelation, and wrestling to know how they can be of service to um, the culture of an empire, which is horribly oppressive. And so literally, the text of, of Luke is written to the question of serving, but it's also written to the question of how we can be people of nonviolent resistance, and we can change the empire not by force, but by the sharing of a grace, one heart, one heart, one heart. So uh, what I realized when I read uh, Robin Griffith Jones's book, suddenly after 30 years of research and prayer, was that these four texts tell a greater story than each one individually, and that the early church knew, they absolutely knew exactly the journey that they were looking for, And because they knew the journey, or we can say they knew the life map, and we can talk about how they knew that, they knew that they were looking for these particular four texts. They knew that they needed the text to answer the four questions, how we face change, how we move through suffering, how we receive joy, and how we serve. And so... And, And knowing that pattern led them to the choice of these texts, which I will say are the only one of the 50 texts, as I've studied, they're the only ones that I can find have the four questions in them in the right sequence. So basically, in my evangelical upbringing, we're, we're oriented toward the gospel texts 
as four different person people's viewpoints on the same story. And then people try to line up the things that match and don't match about <laughs> about the how different the stories are. And what you're saying is is they're retelling of the same story to a different people group in different stages of the life cycle. Right. I mean, as these four Gospels are revealed in the second half of the first century, um, we are. I think everyone agrees that the communities that the Gospel was composed for were already baptized. And that's very important to remember that the first use of the text was not for first evangelization, although they certainly can be used that way, but that the communities for which the texts were written were already baptized Christians who were having a question about how to be a deeper follower in a circumstance which they were not prepared to handle. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the, the story of Jesus was told to them not just historically, although, I mean, it's, it's absolutely history, but it's not told in a historical way because the evangelist, like every great preacher, every great pastor, is trying to tell the story to his or her people in the way that impacts the question that they face right now. So right. another way to say this is, is that the, the author of, of, uh, of Matthew is inspired by grace to look back through the enormous volume of what we know of the life of Jesus and to bring forward everything about what Jesus said, teaching us how we face a moment of tremendous change for which we are not prepared. And, and the Gospel of Mark, again, written where the evangelist looks back through the life of Jesus and brings forward all of Jesus's life experiences and stories which teach somebody how to face a moment of great suffering. So that the, the, the basis of the gospel text I'm saying is not written to tell the life story of Jesus alone, but it's to tell the life story of Jesus as a spiritual practice for a particular type of life experience that you're wrestling with. The here and nowness of our story intersecting the story of God. Absolutely. And so what makes it so universal across time is not only the presence of Jesus across time, which is true, but it's also that every human wrestles with these four questions. Yes. And, you know, in the Listen to My Life materials, we, on the first map, the My Life Now map, the last question we ask people is, what's your lingering question? And that is the, 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 the question that we carry forward to all of the other maps. Like, so as we map our life story, uh, peak experiences, valley experiences, and we do reviewing my days, which is practice and examine. And you know, we're we're bringing forward that lingering question, and that lingering question, I would say, I haven't done a, a thorough study of this, but it would be really easy to categorize all the lingering questions I've heard over the fifteen or how many years we've done this um, into those four categories. Yeah, you know, some version of those four questions of um, how do we face change, how do I endure suffering, how do I return to joy, and how do I live a life of service? I, I, I'm trying to think of any lingering question I've heard that doesn't somehow fit that. 
And so there's an important point here also that that I want to bring out that our intersection and when we say the story of Jesus, the we say Jesus or Jesus Christ, and there's an important distinction between that you that you talk about Jesus the Christ that was part there of the is and, and I, the importance of that. Many many people today are bringing forward that the Christ um, is a universal from the beginning of time. Really, really, the Christ is. Uh, from before the beginning of time. The, the Christ is the second person of the Trinity. Um, and that Jesus is the full expression of the Christ in human form. And so we have these two that come together in Jesus the Christ. We have the, we have the Jesus born, lived, died, resurrected, uh, walked walked amongst us. And we have the Christ who has been with um, the cosmos and with each human uh, from the beginning of time. And so, therefore, um, the, uh, uh, if we had only had Jesus, it would have been very, very hard to translate this Jesus experience from the end of the Mediterranean first century to a reality that could inflame the whole world in love because it would have been, Jesus would have only been something back then, 33 years, etc. But because Jesus the Christ is a reality which is in all time, which has, uh, which has the ability to touch every heart in every place, no matter of time, culture, era, etc., it becomes this uh, uh, overarching uh, immediacy. And the reason that the gospel evangelists could translate the message of Jesus to each one of their communities in the second half of the first century because of the Christ, which has always been. And I realize I'm, so I'm struggling not to go too philosophical here, but I would like people to remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name, that in Jesus the Christ, we have brought together two realities in one. We have brought together the Christ uh, from all time and across all time, together with the Jesus in time and with us. Mm. That is absolutely beautiful, and really the imp- so talk about the implications of that for people like me, people like people that do our life mapping process through Listen to My Life. What what difference does that make in terms of how they view their own story? Well, the difference that it makes for me is that the difference it changes the gospel text from a, I want to live like those people back there to understand that each one of these texts is the story of Jesus the Christ teaching us about a spiritual practice, which is right here and right now. So that I don't simply look back at the gospel as trying to understand what those words meant. That's a good first level understanding, but go deeper and try to understand that each gospel is giving us a spiritual practice or a particular type of spiritual discipline 
that I can live now. And living that spiritual discipline now is the life of Jesus the Christ in me. Okay, so let's take that thought a little bit deeper, let's say in the Gospel of Mark, where the question is, how do I endure suffering? What would I find there? If I'm enduring suffering and I read the Gospel of Mark, what questions do I hold and how do I put those lenses on that will help me to see how this will be helpful to me today? Okay, so the, the Gospel of Mark has got two sides to it, or two halves to it. There's the Gospel as it opens up to the 8th chapter, and then from the 8th chapter to the end. And um, first of all, just how the Gospel of Mark opens, the Gospel gives the, the Christians of Rome who have been condemned to die in execution by Nero because he's blamed the, the Jewish Christians of Rome for the burning of the great city in the summer of 64. The text opens with a meditation on John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a powerful meditation for the Roman Christians because they know that they too are called to be like the John the Baptist, who's probably going, they're probably going to have to give their lives um, on the whim of an emperor just as John the Baptist had to give his life on the, on the whim of a drunken governor. And, and then in the first eight chapters of Mark, you see Jesus acting immediately with a whole series of miracles, whether it's raising Jairus' daughter or calming the storm at the sea, etc. And just in the overview, the first part of the Gospel of Mark is when you are in a time of tremendous suffering, pray. Cast your, your heart upon God and pray that if it be God's will, that the circumstances can be changed and changed immediately. And any close reading of the first eight chapters of Mark, you're going to see that word immediately, immediately, immediately. And any good editor would have, would have taken that out because it, 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 it's like a, an over drum beat. But it is the urgency of the first part of the gospel which is saying, when you're in these times, pray. Pray for, pray that this suffering be lifted. And then comes the eighth chapter. So Jesus is walking the disciples up to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is code language. Because in this region of Caesarea Philippi, are springs of water which well up out of the ground. And what's happened is, is that the snows in the mountains of Lebanon melt, and they go down into the earth, and they come up into this northern part of Israel, and you have all this bubbling water. Well, the thing to know about water coming up out of the ground is fearful water to the Hebrews of the first century. They look at flowing water as potentially the place of the demonic. And say, now, why would that be? Well, there are two things. One is when the great flood happened, we know that the heavens opened and the water came down. But a careful reading of the scriptures will let you know that not only the heavens above the earth, but also the vault underneath the earth cracked and the waters came up. And so the Jews were always quite uh, um, cautious and anxious when they saw bubbling water. Why is this water bubbling? Where is it coming from? Is this water the, the water of shale? And of course, we know that the second reason of their fear of water was because water kept them in Egypt as a slave 
more than more than the emperor. The, the great the great release from Egypt was their ability to cross the Red Sea. And again, if you look at that text very closely, you'll know that the, it says that the Israelites crossed on dry land. So there is this long strain in the Hebrew tradition of fearing flowing water. Jews pray for still water, not flowing water. Flowing water is potentially the place of the demonic. So Jesus the Christ has walked us to the place of our deepest fear, our deepest anxiety. And once there, he asks us the question, who do you say that I am? And of course, the disciples are, you're a prophet, you're Elijah come back, you're John the Baptist. And, and Jesus goes, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter at this point will say, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus the Christ at this point will say to Peter, and right you are, Peter. And the son of the living God is now going to go to Jerusalem and be put on trial and suffer and die. And Peter immediately begins to admonish Jesus. And who would not? It's like for eight chapters, you, you raised Jairus' daughter. You cured my mother-in-law. You stopped the storm on the sea. You're, you're the son of God. Change the script, Jesus. You don't have to do this. And so the second half of the text of Mark is Jesus the Christ teaching about that there is a type of suffering that cannot be evaded. There is a type of suffering in which God cannot change the script. And this is the great mystery of suffering. But the deeper teaching is, is that we do not suffer alone, that the Christ is here in us and with us. And when my small self can no longer bear this, there is a reality that can bear it for me. And so this second half of the teaching is about how we can rely on a power greater than ourselves. When it's that 2 a.m., I'm lying in a hospital bed and every breath is like a knife in my lung. So the, the teaching of Mark is these two sides to suffering, uh, the prayer that the suffering be relieved and the reality that we must always say to God, as your will says, let it be done, so that we know that there is some suffering that cannot be relieved, but that God will walk with us through it. Oh, so beautiful. And, you know, there the metaphors that you that you pull out in each piece and in, in the in in mark the the dark of night and the wilderness and the stormy seas and 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 all to be able to see the metaphor uh the metaphors um even in winter there and you talk about uh john uh, spring and the sunrise in the garden metaphors there and the um in luke in summer, the the road being the metaphor, in the heat of the day, and in Matthew, autumn, and the mountains, and the metaphors there. And it, it's so interesting to reread the gospel with these lenses and read even the terrain as a part of 
the metaphor we're being invited to explore as to what it feels like to live in that season with that question. This was one of the things that that just so struck me. I'm struggling for the word uh, to describe when when this realization came. I mean, many, many, many authors have written about how the Gospel of Matthew is written as the text of the of people climbing a mountain, because to the Jewish people they would hear the new voice of God at the top of a holy mountain. But to realize that each one of the four was written on a landscape that those people knew well, and they knew the question that that landscape posed them, and to realize that that yes. Matthew was written about the mountain and it's written about autumn because autumn is when the light begins to dim and that Mark is written about the the roaring sea, which is a, a place of our deepest fear and anxiety for the Jewish people it was, and that it has all the allusions to winter. And that John is written about that, about a return to the Garden of Eden, about a a garden which is a paradise where the doors and the gates are now open again, that to be in the presence of Jesus the Christ means that Eden is restored. And so the whole uh, landscape underneath the text of John, every great story in that text has, has an element about paradise in it. And then finally, Luke. And this was the hardest one for me because I thought, I thought well, maybe Luke was going to be the exception because I couldn't see, I couldn't see the landscape because I was, I was looking for a place. And then I, I finally realized, no, the place in Luke is the road because when you're serving, there's no destination. There's no end point. It's just today and how you're walking. And there's, there will be no end of service on, on, on this side of the veil. And so when you are in an attitude of service, you cannot look down the road to destinations. It's, it will tear you apart. You will become bitter and cynical that in, in the long road of service, it's only about now. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing for me to remember, too. And, you know, the, uh, those metaphors were so helpful uh, to me in, in getting a handle on what the importance of what you're talking about is and being able to read the text just with, with several different lenses that bring them to life in a new way. And there's so many other questions and so many other conversations that I'd like to have with you. And maybe we can have you back sometime uh, to do another, another segment with us on this one, but, uh, Sharon, I would be delighted at, at any point to be with you again. Oh, that is, that is so gracious of you. Is there anything that you'd like to say to people who have mapped their life or are mapping their lives? Um, any words of encouragement? Well, the, the largest impact for me personally by the work and it, this work really came because of a need I had in my life was to realize that there is a map. Uh, And a map doesn't take away our need that we have to do the work. But a map is so critical, and this was so important to the early Christians, that they knew 
that if they were in a time of change where the old temple was gone, that what came next was going to be a wilderness. That they don't go, you don't go from the mountain to the garden without the mountain leading to a wilderness, and then the mountain in the wilderness leads to the new garden. And that the mountain, the wilderness, and the garden leads to uh, a, a new form and a deeper form of service. They, they knew that this sequence happens in life over and over and over and over. And they also knew that every part of their life could be in a different place in the sequence. But ultimately, it's so important, especially if you're in that mark and wilderness and that deep winter and that, that night that seems like it's going to go on forever, to know there will be a dawn. There will be a dawn. The Christ has not left us behind. There will be a dawn. I cannot tell you when that day or that moment is going to happen, but I can assure you I know the map and I know the presence and dawn is on its way. Mm. Thank you so much for those words of encouragement. And yes, next time I have you on, I'd love to have you talk about your own story mirrored in in the fourfold story here of the Gospels and how, how those particular stories have been of help to you in the midst of your own life. Um, I think those would be just wonderful stories in here to be able to give illustration to our, to our audience to be able to help us all understand the practicality of what you're talking about. And the, now, Alexander's book is, is called Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. It's the second edition, and it is, um, it is not the fast and easy read because you've got you to gotta chew on it for a while. What can I say? <laughs> and uh, it is so well-researched, Alexander. It is so well-grounded. And just every page seemed to have something of an insight that maybe I knew it, but it didn't, I, I hadn't been, had it put in context for me um, before in a way that, that was able to help me connect the dots. And so there were just interesting pieces and parts along the way. So I'd recommend that to all of our listeners, Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation by Alexander John Shia. And Shia is spelled S-H-A-I-A. Once, yeah, which is the Arabic form of the prophet Isaiah. Mm, yes, that's beautiful. And, you know, I don't want to leave without you telling people what you might invite our audience to do with you. Well, I would definitely want to invite you to go to my website, which is www.quadratus, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S.com. And once there, you will find all manner of resources, uh, podcasts, and sharing yours will be there very shortly once this is released, um, uh, further reading material, um, and including there, you'll also see an invitation to join me on the Camino. I lead pilgrims on the Camino each autumn. Uh, so please, please visit me there. Yeah. Well, tell them what the Camino is real quickly. Uh, the Camino is a pilgrimage route across the north uh, part of Spain that uh, culminates in the tomb of, of the Apostle St. James in Santiago. 
and then continues on to uh, to the ocean, the furthest point on the, uh, the western point on the continent of Europe. Mm. Always wanted to do that. And there was also an Easter retreat, correct? There's also an Easter retreat, uh, again, in Spain. But, there, but there's just... The, the website is a treasure trove of jewels, and I just invite you to go explore. Yes, I am looking forward to, uh, to, to joining you on, on some of your experiences soon. Thank you so much, Alexander, for your time once again. And I'll be, we'll be inviting you soon, and maybe even yet today, I'll send you another uh, link so we can do another recording soon. Thanks again. Sharon, thank you. Many blessings. Bye-bye. Have you thought, I don't know myself anymore? Have you wondered, is there something more? Are you at a crossroads in life and asking, which way will lead me toward expressing more of who I am made to be? Are you looking for a way to understand the restlessness you feel inside? Are you seeking a deeper spiritual life and desire to rediscover who you are through God's eyes? If you've wondered any of these things before, you're ready for the life mapping experience of Listen to My Life. Go to onelifemaps.com to purchase your portfolio of visual life maps. While you're there, check out our upcoming virtual coaching groups, live workshops, and options for you to facilitate the Listen to My Life experience with others. That's onelifemaps.com. O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S.com.